the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. And this is the July 2023 Literature Review Series uh, featuring not one but two special guests uh, joined by Chris Bollinger and Hannah Davis from the University of North Carolina. Quick aside, uh, how can you say that and not instantly think of this? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So uh, tangent back, but this episode leads off with uh, featured articles, a summer six pack uh, of studies highlighting some of the best articles of the month. And then the discussion shifts to articles focusing on cardiology, hematology, and pulmonology, uh, followed by the category featuring articles voted on by you, friends of the pod, in the pharmacist featured section, aka front of the fridge, and ending as always with our grab bag with some random kind of non-clinical articles. So if you're listening, if you want to vote on future uh, episodes, episode future articles for that literature review series, be sure to follow on Twitter or Instagram at Pharmacy to Dose. Uh, the website is back. We still got a little couple tweaks, but I appreciate everyone's patience. I think this is going to be uh, much easier to navigate. Uh, the ultimate goal is that the trials of the day uh, will get fe- uh, featured on the website as well. So you'll be able to go to those as well as the socials to see those. So uh, July was such an awesome month for publishing so many good articles. So I think it's time to get going. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And very lucky to be joined by Chris Bollinger and Hannah Davis. Now, Chris is one of the PGY2 critical care residents at the UNC Medical Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. After receiving his PharmD and MBA from the Butler University in Indianapolis, let's go dogs. Um, you can find him on Twitter at Bollinger715. And Hannah is the other PGY2 critical care resident. So we got the co-residents on the pod today. She's from the UNC Medical Center in Chapel Hill um, and received her pharmacy degree from the University of Florida. You can find her on Twitter at Hannah D underscore Farm D. Hannah and Chris, how are we both doing today? Doing great. How are you? 
Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having us on, Nick. Doing great. Perfect. Well, I mean, Hannah, this is no offense, but uh, Chris being a Butler Bulldog, he's kind of, if we're pow- if we're doing power rankings throughout the episode, currently Chris is slightly ahead exclusively from where he got his pharmacy degree. No offense to the Gators, right? But but I'm a Butler Bulldog. So, um, But I think we got plenty of room. There's awesome articles. Very, very excited to get going with our articles today. And of course, we need to get started with our featured articles. And I think it's kind of a, I guess you'd say a summer six pack because the holiday six pack is when you have less than one. The summer six pack is we're going one more, right? We're, we're uh, bringing it up a little bit and we're going to have seven, but I'm excited because Hannah's going to lead off our, our July literature review series, discussing the use of an herbal medication in sepsis. You heard that correctly. So Hannah, the floor is yours. Thanks. So when you think about treatment for sepsis, you probably think about fluids and antibiotics and maybe some pressors and steroids, but I bet you probably aren't thinking about Chinese herbal medicine. The exit step study aimed to determine the effect of Zwebijing injection compared to placebo on 28-day mortality among patients with sepsis. And Zwebijing, or XBJ as I'll be referring to it from here on out, is an herbal-based intravenous preparation that's licensed in China for the treatment of sepsis and multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. It is prepared from a combination of different flowers and roots and purportedly antagonizes endotoxin, inhibits inflammatory mediators, improves coagulation balance, regulates immune response, and prevents development of organ dysfunction. This was a double-blind placebo-controlled RCT conducted at 45 sites in China from October 2017 to June 2019. They included adult patients 18 to 75 years of age with sepsis, according to the sepsis-3 consensus definition, who had an initial SOFA score of 2 to 13. Key exclusion criteria included patients who had been diagnosed with sepsis for longer than 48 hours, those who had severe primary disease, such as non-resectable tumors, HIV, and hematologic diseases, and patients taking immunosuppressants or with a recent organ transplant. They calculated a sample size of 1,800 would provide 80% power to detect a 6% difference in mortality. 1,800 patients were randomized to receive XBJ or placebo in a one-to-one fashion. Patients in the XBJ group received 100 milliliters of XBJ and 100 milliliters of normal saline every 12 hours for five days and patients in the placebo group received a matching placebo dose. Baseline characteristics were similar between groups with a mean age of 56, a mean SOFA score of 7.1, and Apache 2 scores less than 25% in most patients. About 14% of patients received glucocorticoids, and almost half received vasopressors. For the primary outcome of all-cause mortality at 28 days, they noted a significantly lower mortality in the XBJ group, That was 18.8% compared to 26.1% in the placebo group. However, the patients included in this analysis were only those who completed the 28-day follow-up, which resulted in a total of 1,700 patients, which did not meet their pre-specified population size for adequate power. Of note, only about three-quarters of the patients in each group actually completed the full five days of therapy, and 39 patients in the XBJ group and 28 in placebo never received a dose of their assigned treatment. For secondary endpoints, they found a significant difference in ICU mortality, in-hospital mortality, ICU-free days, and 28-day cumulative mechanical ventilation-free days, all of which favored the XBJ group. 
When performing subgroup analyses, the 28-day mortality difference remained significant for both ranges of SOFA scores, but was not significant for Apache 2 scores greater than 24. The safety analysis, which only included patients who received at least one dose of their assigned treatment, revealed no severe adverse effects and no treatment discontinuations due to drug toxicity. Overall rates of adverse events were similar between groups, and the most common adverse drug event and the XBJ group was elevated ALT and AST. The authors concluded that IV infusion of XBJ at a dose of 100 milliliters every 12 hours for five days significantly reduced 28-day mortality with an acceptable safety profile. The strengths of the study include its design and the stratifications performed for disease severity. They also perform multiple subgroup and sensitivity analyses to assess the robustness of their findings and had a fairly large patient population. Additionally, they used an intention-to-treat pro protocol, which better mimics real-world effectiveness. However, some notable limitations include the higher loss of follow-up in the XBJ group. Additionally, despite the overall patient population being less sick than typical sepsis populations, they actually had a higher mortality rate in the placebo group than predicted and than is typical for either China or U.S. sepsis populations. Because of this finding and the study being conducted entirely in China, there is a question of whether we'd see the same effect in the U.S. population. While this is an incredibly intriguing study and the findings are certainly interesting, I don't think the results of this can influence our treatment of sepsis in the U.S. until they've been confirmed in additional studies with populations that are more representative of patients here. The study supplement provides some information about the ingredients in XBJ, and the list contains over 104 excuse me, different ingredients. Given the complexity of the compound and the lack of regulation around herbal medicines in the United States, I question the feasibility of ever getting a medication like this approved for use. But still, I think any therapy that has the potential to improve mortality and sepsis deserves some attention. I'd just like to see a little bit more data first. Anna, can you imagine the FDA approval process for something that has 104 different compounds and they literally have like the chemical ingredients? You can't, I can't pronounce half of these, right? Like it feels like I'm looking at the the <laughs> spelling bee when they're, when you're looking at some of these things, safloquinoside E, like what is that? <laughs> there's a, yeah. there's a really good editorial talking about that, like what the approval would look like and things. Um, you know, I first heard of this intervention when, when uh, Keaton Smetana and I were talking about the Interact 3 trial. There's a huge Chinese population in there. And, you know, you mentioned it. The statistics are just like a tad strange in here. They, like, excluded some patients. They don't necessarily discuss why. Um, now, one thing I kind of wanted to point out, that primary outcome, if they were missing data, they assumed that all those patients were alive. That's what they say. One thing I just want to kind of point out is that, when you look in the supplementary appendix, like that E table three, they show how no matter what they would have assumed them, like they could have assumed they were all dead or things. And it would have, and they show that the statistics would have maintained that significance. And I think maybe all but one simulation. So um, just a quick, I know you read that and you're like, oh wait, what? And it's like, well, it probably is more best case scenario, but they did run the stats. Um, and then the, the only other two kind of points were interestingly when you when you're in that supplementary appendix e figure two that forest plot it actually seems to imply that the less sick patients those not in shock seem the younger patients seem to benefit the most and i think inherently you think kind of the opposite so maybe something to that and then with a with a kind of frowny face, carbapenems are the second most used antibiotic in these patients. So, just a a sign of of things to come from that perspective. So, 
Chris, let's keep discussing sepsis-related trials and go into a study researching a unique administration of a common vasopressor used in septic shock. Absolutely. Thanks, Nick. So we're all probably fairly familiar with vasopressin, but we not might not be familiar with vasopressin loading. So this study published in Critical Care, the vasopressin loading dose for refractory septic shock, also known as the Fowler study, looked into vasopressin loading doses as a predictor of vasopressin response. Going into the background a bit, the VAST trial in 2008 helped establish vasopressin's use in septic shock, and then the VANISH trial in 2016 confirmed that a lower dose of vasopressin at a rate of 0.03 units per minute had similar outcomes in patients with septic shock compared to higher titratable doses of vasopressin. So these trials are part of the basis for why most institutions using vasopressin, use vasopressin at doses at a flat rate of 0.03 units per minute in septic shock. And historically, vasopressin has not been loaded due to concerns for safety and a lack of evidence to support efficacy. So Valor was a single-center prospective observational study performed at a Japanese medical center that hypothesized that a loading dose of vasopressin may be preferable due to vasopressin's longer onset of action and that a quick response to vasopressin load may be indicative of success with overall vasopressin therapy in septic shock. The impetus for this study was based on a case series including 21 patients that these same researchers were involved with that supported this hypothesis. So the dosing of vasopressin in the study included a one-unit bolus followed by a vasopressin, in, vasopressin infusion at a rate of one unit per hour. Now, if your ears perked up a little bit, that's because this continuous rate works out to be about half of what a patient would receive at a rate of 0.03 units per minute. And this speaks a little bit to the difference in the U.S. and Japanese patient populations as the the Japanese patient population tends to be a bit older and have a lower total body weight in general. The study included adult patients with septic shock based on sepsis three criteria, those who were already on and were already on norepinephrine at a rate of 0.2 micrograms per kilogram per minute who had not yet received stress of steroids and had arterial lines placed. Patients were divided into two groups, responders and non-responders. A responder was defined as a patient who had a change in MAP greater than 22 millimeters of mercury within the first three to five minutes after a loading dose was administered. And from there, the primary outcome was change in catecholamine index or CAI at six hours following bolus. Catecholamine index was a calculation of a patient's dopamine, dobutamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine use. Secondary outcomes included change in CAI at two and four hours, steroid use following bolus, in-hospital death, and incidence of digital ischemia, mesenteric ischemia, and myocardial ischemia to assess for safety. There were a total of 92 patients included, 62 patients were in the responder group, and 30 patients fell into the non-responder group. Patients were mostly male in their late 70s with baseline weights of about 55 kilos. SOFA scores and rates of mechanical ventilation were similar between both groups. And a few notable differences include a difference in baseline CAI with a CAI, CAI of 30 in the responder group and 47 in the non-responder group, a difference in pre-bolus max lactate with 2.6 in the responder group versus 4.7 in the non-responder group, and a difference in time to vasopressin administration load with responders receiving vasopressin at five hours and non-responders receiving vasopressin at one hour. Results found that a bolus of vasopressin did have a statistically significant reduction in CAI at six hours in the responder group with a difference of negative 10 versus no change in the non-responder group. There were also statistically significant differences seen in CAI at two and four hours respectively, 
and steroids were required in 25% of the responder group and 57% in the non-responder group, which was statistically significant. While not statistically significant, there was also a 20% reduction in mortality in the responder group. It is important to re-emphasize that the non-responder group had a significantly higher lactate prior to vasopressin load. Met norepinephrine criteria to receive vasopressin uh, sooner than the non-responder group and had a higher baseline CAI, all of which may potentially indicate that this group was more severely ill and potentially unlikely to respond to therapy regardless of how vasopressin was introduced. From a safety standpoint, visual ischemia, mesenteric ischemia, and cardiac ischemia collectively only occurred in five out of the 92 total patients. So while this trial did seem to show that a bolus of vasopressin may indicate success or failure with vasopressin, it does have a few big limitations. As mentioned, the population study was quite different than the population we would typically see here in the U.S., and there was also no blinding involved in the methodology, which may have introduced a bias into the results. That being said, I think the underlying principle and pharmacokinetics does have some theoretical merit and could lead to some changes in how we utilize vasopressin. But an RCT comparing vasopressin loading to a placebo would ultimately be what would answer that question. And for the time being, I'd like to see more data on the efficacy and safety before I would routinely start using vasopressin in this way in septic shock patients. Kind of an interesting primary outcome, Chris. You know, I tried to look. They don't necessarily, you know, they re- when they talk about the um, the CAI right or that catecholamine index, they reference like their it's like a link to like their study, like registration. But I, even in the, even in like the pilot study, I just don't see anything of like where this index came from. Why, why are we supposed to trust this index? Why does this matter to us versus just like our map changes or things? So that was the only thing that was like that you highlighted that equation and things are just a little, um, a little strange. Um, but you know, interesting nonetheless, what a, what a nightmare of, you know, the one unit per hour equal equaling 0.01666667 units per minute, like just a med safety nightmare of wind around. Um, and then you, you know, you mentioned the difference in, in time to administration. I was surprised by that too. I would have thought the opposite. I would have thought the, the non-responders would have received, received it at five hours. And it probably just makes you think they were a whole lot more sick. Like you mentioned, right? The non-responders, they had a higher lactate, you know, five to almost two. They had almost three times the corticosteroid use afterwards. So interesting finding. Yeah. The average body weight, 52.5 kilos. Yeah. This is not the U S uh, patients for sure. We would, I would be a terrible eyeball weight, um, in Japan for sure. So Chris, if, cause this is, uh, we, uh, we have a new study, right? So if you say you're rounding with somebody tomorrow, they just read this. They're like, Oh man, vasopressin loading dose is the future. Chris, we have to do this one unit loading dose, one unit per hour. What would your response be if, if someone asked you to do that compared to kind of like our classic, uh, 0.03 or 0.04 units per minute? I'd probably just say that the 0.03 is pretty tried and true in terms of its efficacy in just limiting catecholamines overall. And 92, an end of 92 isn't really going to change my thoughts on that. Like I said, like a randomized control trial would ultimately be what would be like the gold standard for changing dosing that significantly. Um, cause that's a pretty significant jump from like how we use vasopressin now. So all of a sudden we're like doing loading doses and like the reprogramming of pumps and all this other crazy med safety stuff to your point. So. I, th- I think the jury is very much still out. Um, like I said, this is interesting and maybe where things are going, but we're not there yet. And that's kind of how I would approach that around. But 
also to your point, yeah, def- these patients were definitely not Hoosiers or North Carolinians, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's like op- protocolizing or operationalizing, giving safely giving a loading dose from vasopressin in time where we're not necessarily used to doing that, that would be challenging. So I'm, I'm kind of on your side there for sure. So let's shift gears here a bit and uh, discuss an intervention post-cardiac arrest uh, looking to, of course, improve those patient outcomes. And uh, researchers have theorized that uh, alterations in cerebral effusion perfusion could affect post-cardiac arrest neurologic outcome. And a target for that, right, has been mild hypercapnia. As a as your PCO2 rises up to a certain point, the theory is that um, it can increase that blood flow to the brain, it could be a little neuroprotective, right? In the, the 2014 Finn Resussi Perspective Multicenter Study found that actually hypercapnia was one of the independent predictors of a good outcome. Now, up until this point, most of the evidence related to this has been observational, but published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the mild hypercapnia or normocapnia after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest or the TAME study is testing the hypothesis that hypercapnia improves six-month outcomes in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So this international open-label randomized trial enrolled adult comatose patients with sustained ROSC for at least 20 minutes following an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Now, patients had to be enrolled within three hours of ROSC and a couple key exclusion criteria asystole being your initial rhythm, an unwitnessed cardiac arrest, and then if patients were undergoing eCPR. And when possible, this was one of those um, kind of dual trials where uh, patients were also enrolled in the TTM2 trial when possible, right, comparing our our, uh, temperatures afterwards. So uh, in the TAME study, patients were randomized to mild hypercapnia targeting a PCO2 of 50 to 55, so a little bit narrow, uh, or normocapnia, which is that 35 to 45 range, for 24 hours post-randomization. All patients received deep sedation targeting that RAS of at least negative four, but other care was at the discretion of the provider. And that primary outcome was our six-month favorable neurologic outcome uh, via the Glasgow Outcome Scale Extended Score, right? That GASI score. So from March 2018 through September 2021, 1,700 patients were enrolled. Uh, but data on the primary outcome, just FYI, was missing in a about 7.5% of patients. Now, I know what you're thinking, right? How did we lose that much? Keep in mind, right? March 2018 through September 21, right? They're recruiting right through the pandemic. So keep that in mind, right? Those things uh, made research much, much harder, especially in that 2020 phase. Uh, But there was no significant difference in the primary outcome, which occurred 46%, that favorable neurologic outcome, uh, compared to 48% in the hypercapnia group. No differences when we were looking at those subgroup analyses, health-related quality of life, adverse effects or mortality. So uh, what was probably a little, a quick intervention that we could kind of target, unfortunately, I think this study uh, really tamed our expectations on the effect of hypercapnia in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. But a uh, a really well done and an interesting study from the ANZIC study group, the TAME study. Um, So let's continue to look at interventions helping to improve neurologic outcomes. And Hannah, let's review a study comparing two common pharmacologic treatments in neurocritical care. Thanks, Nick. So, yeah, I think one of the serious terms you can hear in the neurocritical care world is ICP crisis. And we all know that elevated ICP is one of the biggest threats to patients with traumatic brain injury as it contributes to secondary injury beyond that primary insult. 
So hyperosmolar therapies can help treat acute ICT crisis, but guidelines don't really provide a definitive preference for either therapy. So the use of each tends to be variable depending on the clinician, the center, as well as the individual patient characteristics. So the center TBI study aimed to assess whether preference for mannitol, hypertonic saline, or combined use translated into different outcomes. This was a prospective observational cohort comparative effectiveness study conducted at 63 centers in Europe and Israel. They included 500 patients aged 16 years or older who sustained a traumatic brain injury within the last 24 hours and received either mannitol or hypertonic saline. The interventions were not dictated by randomization since this was based on center preference. They assessed if the medical center a patient presented to influenced the hyperosmolar therapy patients received, as well as the association between that preference on outcomes, including ICU mortality and neurological outcome at six months after injury. They defined preference on a few different levels to add to the robustness of their analysis. Preference at the patient level was defined based on which hyperosmolar therapy the patient received on their first day, regardless of what they received on subsequent days. So if they received mannitol on day one, they were included in the mannitol group. Preference at the center level was based on what the majority of the center's patients received with a cutoff of 66%. So if more than 66% of patients at a given center received hypertonic saline, then that center was designated as a hypertonic saline center. They also included a management level analysis, which allowed investigators to indicate their preferred agent, and all patients in their institution would be regarded as having received that agent. If no preference criteria was met for any of these definitions, then patients were assigned to the group that received both therapies. By the way, this study was a statistics frenzy, so I'm not going to go into all the details, but if you're a statistics nerd, you should definitely check it out. Compared to patients who did not receive hyperosmolar therapy, the investigators noted patients who received hyperosmolars were younger, had more severe brain injury, received more ICP lowering treatments, and had significantly longer length of stay and worse outcomes. They also noted that mean baseline ICP was significantly higher. Within the patients who received hyperosmolar therapy, 57% received hypertonic saline, 30% received mannitol, and 13% received both. They noted a significantly higher age by about seven years in the mannitol group, as well as a significantly higher mean ICP in the group receiving both therapies. Their analysis revealed that it was medical center and not patient-specific that influenced the decision to use one therapy over the other. When looking at outcomes, they noted no difference between the mannitol and hypertonic saline groups in mortality or unfavorable neurological outcome at six months on any level of preference. They did, however, note that both endpoints were significantly worse in the group of patients receiving both hyperosmolar therapies. However, this is likely consistent with more severe injuries at baseline. The authors concluded that preference for hyperosmolar agent varies based on center rather than patient characteristics and that this choice did not affect ICU mortality or six-month outcomes. The strengths of this study include its robust, albeit intensive, statistical analysis with multiple definitions to account for confounding. They also incorporated a large number of centers to ensure that variations in preference were maximized and accounted for. They performed instrumental variable analysis to help account for variables which affect preference but do not influence outcomes, which is important in a study where variations in practice exist. In terms of limitations, I think it's important to consider how they assign patients to groups for analysis. This was done with various definitions, but oftentimes results in patients being empirically assigned to a particular intervention that they may not have received. 
This did happen in the minority of patients, but it's still worth noting as it can sway the results. Notably, the multiple definitions were included to help account for those variations. And they also did not collect data on safety, which is an important concern with hyperosmolar therapies. So it would have been good to see incidents of AKI and extravasation. And finally, there was no data collected on the reason for the use of hyperosmolar therapies. And this is important since treating an elevated ICP is different than treating an impending herniation. And as such, preference for each agent might vary in each situation. Overall, the study showed that the choice of hyperosmolar therapy is driven by center preference and that this preference does not significantly affect outcomes. I think this is an interesting study since there is not really any definitive guidance on which agent to use. Um, but it would be nice to see the two therapies compared in a head-to-head -head prospective study to further assess outcomes with each agent. So, Hannah, you mentioned it's kind of a a preference, whether it's the yourself or your site. So, what's your what's your favorite or preferred uh, hyperosmolar agent when you're treating cerebral edema or elevated ICPs? I feel like I default to hypertonic saline usually. You just you don't really have to worry about AKI as much, and it gets the job done. Um, and then if their sodium's too high, you might be you can just fall back on mannitol. It's a good backup. It's just easier, right? That's always my argument. When neurosurgery comes to the bed and instantly wanting mannitol, right? It's like, let's get it out of the warmer. It's, it's inherently going to be crystallized. Let's get the filter, right? Let's calculate our dough, all those things. So it's it's just easier. And, and what that, you know, there's no real difference. It's time, you know, time to treatment in a lot of this. And, you know, this is a, the, this center TBI study, it's essentially a core data set, like a registry data set, essentially looking at, ED patients, ICU patients, and patients just admitted to the hospital. So in this prospective cohort, you know, Hannah, that was right. That was one of the things that stood out to me is you think they would have at least included maybe sodium values with the hypertonic or, you know, like you said, creatinine, AKI rate. So, um, and then it was also tough to kind of make definitive conclusions without doses, right? Typically, if it's up to the center, they probably are treating them appropriately, but you'd kind of be, you know, wanting to know, to know that. And then, only 24 patients receiving hyperosmolar therapy, right? That's a pretty low, a pretty low percentage, I think. But when you think of the whole data set in general, a decent amount. Um, you know, I think this is this is a real world analysis, right? Patients didn't really get excluded. It's just a massive data set, and I have a feeling this is going to be. We're going to continue getting studies looking at specific pieces of care of these TBI patients um, from Europe because the overall study goals are basically to improve the characterization and classification of TBI in in European patients um, with inclusion of some of these emerging technologies and to identify the most effective clinical care provide high quality evidence support of treatment recommendations and guidelines. So they've had two other studies, I believe they referenced. This will be the third. So um, Hannah, great, great highlight. Um, Cause I think this will certainly be seeing more and more coming from this uh, data set. Now, Chris is going to come back and highlight, I'm going to be honest with you, probably my favorite study from this entire episode, which may have us rethink a very common pre-checked medication in hospital admission electronic order sets. So Chris, take it away. All right. So no pressure, uh, pun intended. Um, so it's been estimated that between 50 and 74% of patients will experience hypertension during their hospitalization. But there is mounting evidence that intensive blood pressure control while inpatient may actually be causing more harm than benefits. So Rastagi et al. in 2020 found higher rates of AKI and myocardial injury associated with intensive blood pressure control. And in 2021, Mahandas et al. found higher rates of ischemic stroke and AKI in patients receiving PRN blood pressure medications on top of scheduled blood pressure medications. 
This study published in JAMA Internal Medicine, Clinical Outcomes of Intensive Inpatient Blood Pressure Management in Hospitalized Older Adults, investigated hospital-related outcomes associated with early administration of IV or PO blood pressure medications in patients over 65 years old. So this was a retrospective matched cohort study that included VA patients greater than 65 years old who had two or more blood pressure readings greater than 140 over 90 and received either one IV or one previously unprescribed PO antihypertensive med in the first 48 hours after admission. Patients were excluded if they were admitted for a primary cardiovascular diagnosis or had symptoms indicating hypertensive emergency. So the primary outcome was a composite of inpatient mortality, AKI, stroke, myocardial injury defined as elevated troponin, BNP elevation greater than 900, and transfer to ICU. Simple enough, secondary outcomes were the components of the composite score as well as disposition to either home or skilled nursing facility or SNF. Several subgroups were also analyzed, including patients greater than or older than 75 years old, patients with frailty at baseline, patients with baseline elevated blood pressures greater than 140 over 90, patients with uh, CVD at baseline, and patients with diastolic blood pressure greater than 180 in the first 48 hours of hospitalization. And these subgroups were chosen because it was hypothesized that, that these particular populations would be more or less likely to benefit from hypertensive intervention. So this, again, was a very large study, uh, which is kind of the theme for the last couple of studies. Uh, it included over 14,000 patients in the intensive treatment group and 52,000 in the non-intensive treatment group. This being a VA study, almost all patients included were male, close to 98%. Over 75% were Caucasian race, and the average age was roughly 74 years old in both groups. Comorbid conditions were also similar between the groups, with 85% having hypertension at baseline, and reasons for hospitalization were also similar with respiratory and digestive disease states being the most common. And the results were all pretty eye-opening, as Nick alluded to. So between the two groups, patients receiving intensive blood pressure management in the first 48 hours following admission were at, at a higher risk of experiencing the primary composite outcome with a weighted odds ratio of 1.28 that was statistically significant. Further, patients in the intensive group had a statistically significant greater risk of AKI, transfer to ICU, myocardial injury, and hypotension, and hypotension while inpatient. Intensively treated patients were also more likely to be discharged to a SNF and less likely to be discharged to home. There was also higher risk of stroke and inpatient mortality. However, these were not statistically significant. And interestingly, compared with patients who only received PO medications in the first 48 hours, patients receiving IV received a greater mean number of doses during hospitalization of antihypertensive medications and receipt of IV antihypertensive was associated with a odds ratio of 1.9 for the composite outcome. The subgroup analysis also showed an increased risk for the primary composite outcome for patients greater than 75 years old, patients with frailty at baseline, patients with outpatient hypertension greater than 140 over 90, and those with a history of CVD, all of which were statistically significant. So it should be noted that this study did have a couple of big, or big limitations. Most notably, the patient population observed may not be generalizable to those who practice at non-VA sites. And also, it should be, again, reemphasized that these patients did not have overt signs of end organ damage that would constitute a hypertensive emergency. So when applying that to an ICU population, that should be definitely kept in mind. However, I think the bottom line here is that not every elderly patient that's admitted needs to fall within ACC AHA outpatient goals of 140 over 90 while they are inpatient. The study authors also make a pretty interesting argument that blood pressure could almost be treated as the same way we treat sinus tachycardia. In other words, if you treat the underlying hemodynamic 
or if you treat the underlying issue causing the hemodynamic abnormality, that should resolve or at least return to a patient's baseline rather than treating the number itself. Um, at UNC, I know our critical care group and our internal medicine pharmacy group has been working to optimize our use of PRN blood pressure medications by specifying target blood pressures in the PRN parameters of those medication orders, which should indirectly limit the amount of unnecessary exposure to blood pressure medications that our patients could potentially see while they are admitted. Yeah, uh, I love that the authors, I'm glad you pointed it out that they compared it to treating sinus tachycardia, right? And um, now we'll get into some of these things, but just a reminder, right? Retrospective cohort study, um, in line with what we think, it makes sense mechanistically, but it's, you know, hypothesis generating. It feels like for these things to actually change, this is going to be like stopping gastric residual monitoring in the ICU. It is going to be years, probably a decade of work to, to, to make people instantly not just see a blood pressure number and treat it. Um, I love in the, in the intro, the authors highlight some key reasons, right? Why, why inpatient treatment might not be acutely warranted, right? And the two that stood out to me, chronic therapy, right? Like the, um, Chris mentioned the ACC, AHA guidelines, right? We're measuring that in months and years, not hours to days, like where our inpatient treatment goals are. And, Think about all the reasons your blood pressure could be falsely elevated in the hospital. You just got told you have to have surgery, right? You might have a new diagnosis of a like heart failure, diabetes, who knows, right? So the idea that your blood pressure when you're admitted in the hospital bed, when you're instead, you know, at your home bed, it's not probably not gonna be the same. It's the same thing, right? Like people don't have the same diet um, that they do inpatient versus necessarily outpatient. It almost feels like the argument to not treat hypertensive urgency with IV medication, right? The difference is because a lot of those patients that were excluded, they're having signs of end organ damage, which makes sense. You will, you would want to treat those, but over 50% of these patients had greater, um, than 160 millimeters of mercury blood pressure reading. Um, so kudos to this U S research team, tremendous amount of data, um, what a beast being able to create the statistical methods to analyze this, but what an interesting study, um, great things to hopefully build on. But I love that, that Chris, you came on to highlight it. Cause this is probably my favorite. This is probably my favorite study of the month. Cause it's just something where, you know, treating the number doesn't, it just makes us feel better. And what we're showing is maybe it, it doesn't necessarily help the patient at all, but might actually hurt the patient. So, um, great study there. Now let's close out, remember, holiday or uh, the summer six-pack, not the holiday six-pack. Uh, we're going to close out with two studies looking at different surgical populations. So the first is a study attempting to see if pre-hospital tranexamic acid improves outcomes in trauma patients. So we know CRASH-2 and CRASH-3, uh, those looked at in-hospital use of tranexamic acid or TXA in trauma patients. CRASH-2 found that TXA reduced all-cause mortality, but of course, questions with external validity, methodology, we're not going to be able to get into all those here. And then subsequently, CRASH-3 it didn't necessarily find a difference in outcomes with TXA um, compared to placebo when given to TBI patients. Now, what's the thought of even giving this, right? So acute traumatic coagulopathy that's associated with increased fibrinolysis. And of course the thought tranexamic acid, that's an anti-fibrinolytic. So the thought is you could shut down that fibrinolytic pathway and help halt that acute traumatic coagulopathy. So we have searched kind of in hospital. Now let's kind of maybe look for the out of hospital side. And that is where the patch trial came to be. So this is an international prospective, a multi-center 
double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial, uh, also endorsed by the ANZIC's uh, clinical trials group, so that Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Medicine Research Group. Um, and this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, right, pre-hospital tramexamic acid for severe trauma. Now, the trial enrolled adult injured trauma patients with a COAST score of greater than or equal to three, with the study medication being given within three hours. So what is the COAST score, you may be asking? So it's a tool used to identify patients at high risk of acute traumatic coagulopathy. So in their kind of validation study, the, the uh, score of greater than or equal to three had a 96% sensitivity rate for identifying patients with that ATC. And it includes things like, were they trapped in the vehicle? What's their blood pressure? What's their temperature? Do they have a likely pelvic injury? Do they have like a pneumothorax? Those kinds of things. So it's meant for paramedics to be able to see, quickly identify on the scene. It's meant to be simple, right? The KISS method. So the authors attempted to include the severely injured patients at high risk of acute traumatic coagulopathy. And a a key exclusion criteria, just very unique, is a nursing home resident. So if you're in a nursing home, you are not in the patch trial. So patients were randomized to TXA. They're given one gram via slow IV injection defined as 10 minutes, which by the way, quick aside, I would love to know how many people actually got a 10 minute IV push of tranexamic acid, because my guess is that is a low number. 10 minutes of an IV push is so long, but Either way, that's an aside. So they did the loading dose followed by that maintenance dose of one gram given over eight hours at participating hospitals, which are all trauma centers. Now, the primary outcome was the portion of patients who had a favorable outcome at six months uh, compared to those who died or had severe disability. So just over 1,300 patients were enrolled from July 2014 through September 2021. A few things about the patients. Blunt injury was by far and away the most common mechanism. About 70% was hypotensive. They had a median injury severity score of 29 and a COAST score of 4. And then about 25% in each patient uh, had a INR greater than 1.3 on arrival, right? Indicating maybe some coagulopathy there. So when they were looking at the intention to treat analysis of the primary outcome, no difference was seen in that six-month favorable functional outcomes, right? Both around 53%. Now, mortality got reduced at 24 hours and 28 days, but not six months with TXA compared to placebo. Now, secondary outcomes, kind of hypothesis generating, um, and no significant difference between thrombotic events, about 21% in each arm per that per protocol analysis. And that's kind of in line with some of these other studies that are showing a lack of benefit with empiric TXA administration. But it is of note that it is one of those studies where, or one of these interventions where if you're going to do it, it's one of those you want to do it right away, right? We know the benefits earliest in that first hour, definitely within three like this study did. Um, but kind of in line with some of those other studies, no necessarily a huge difference in out-of-hospital um, administration. And our last featured article for the July 2023 Literature Review Series looks at choice of crystalloid in kidney transplant patients. So we are staying down under with the Australian and New Zealand research study published in Lancet, the balanced crystalloid solution versus saline in deceased donor kidney transplant, the best fluid study, which is that's a great name for the record. So in kidney transplant patients, right, receipt of a deceased donor kidney rather than a live donor can increase that risk of delayed graft function, which is defined as just needing intermittent hemodialysis within the first week post-transplant, right? Delayed graft function. The graft isn't necessarily working. You're not getting that good kidney function as expected. So 
Knowing the research and the possible benefits with crystalloid choice, right, the authors created the best fluid study to test if plasmolite reduced the incidence of delayed graft function in deceased donor kidney transplant patients compared to normal saline. Now, of note, authors originally had a composite primary outcome that was delayed graft function and a creatinine reduction ratio, which is a measure of graft function recovery. Now, thankfully, some smart peer reviewers uh, messaged the authors and said, hmm, I'm not really sure that uh, a creatinine reduction ratio change is going to change my practice per se. So they received feedback and they changed the outcome just to delayed graph function and they changed that sample size a little bit accordingly. So they enrolled 807 patients. They were randomized to either normal saline or plasmolite from January 2018 through August 2020. Um, and treatment with plasma was actually associated with a relative risk reduction of 25% and a relative risk for delayed graft function of 0.74 compared to saline with a low rate of adverse effects in both groups. So I feel like we've highlighted a few non-positive studies recently for the balanced fluids crew. So here's one for the good guys. The best fluid study showed that balanced solutions are certainly the case for our kidney transplant patients getting that deceased donor transplant. So what an awesome uh, section of featured articles for the month of July. And now Hannah's going to come back and talk to us about some cardiovascular studies as we go into the don't go breaking my heart section. So Hannah's going to lead off this section seeing if the choice of antihypertensive agent improves outcomes in a specific CT surgery population. So Hannah, take it away. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, so this next study actually takes us back to this age-old debate of RAS inhibition versus beta blockade. Um, but this time we're talking about their use in abdominal aortic aneurysms or AAAs as I'll be calling them. The study was published in the Journal of the American Heart Association and was a retrospective analysis of prospectively collected database information that was aimed at evaluating whether treatment with RAS inhibition compared to beta blockade influenced postoperative and one-year clinical endpoints following open surgical or endovascular AAA repair. And in this patient population, blood pressure control is critical to reduce mortality and postoperative complications. And while beta blockers have been shown to reduce mortality, some analyses have shown no effect on SAC regression, which is an endpoint that's associated with better long-term outcomes. They included 8,700 patients with hypertension who underwent open or endovascular aneurysm repair who received beta blockers and RAS inhibitors from 2003 through 2018. They did propensity score matching for about 6,000 patients to account for baseline differences between the two groups. Investigators found that RAS inhibitor use was associated with a lower risk of postoperative 30-day mortality in hospital myocardial infarction and non-home discharge. They also noted a lower risk of mortality and aneurysmal rupture at one year with RAS inhibitors. The authors concluded that RAS inhibition was associated with favorable postoperative and one-year outcomes compared to beta blockers. The strengths of the study are the large study population and the use of propensity score matching to account for the significant differences in baseline characteristics between groups. This was also the first study to compare RAS inhibitors to beta blockers in this patient population. In terms of limitations, investigators did not collect data on the use of each agent following discharge, so adherence to the study drug cannot be confirmed and deviations could have affected one-year outcomes. 
I think the findings of this study present an interesting opportunity for the potential use of RAS inhibition in this population as an alternative to beta blocker therapy, but I'd like to see a prospective study with more balanced groups to account for confounders. I also think it'd be interesting to investigate the additive effects of beta blockers and RAS inhibitors since they're both commonly prescribed together in patients with cardiovascular history. Yeah, they, they included patients from the Vision data set, which just is a tremendous name of a, of a data set. And the, the authors mentioned, right, that that, that uh, renin-angiotensin activation might play a part. Um, so I think this is a fantastic hypothesis-generating finding. I was actually, when they looked at just not looking at balance versus unbalanced, but just looking at the baseline characteristics in general, I kind of assumed that more patients would have an indication for one of those like ACE, ARBs, ARNIs. And it's actually, I mean, other than CKD, it felt like there weren't really tons. And so it makes sense that um, a lot of these patients might not have had an indication for it. Because going in, I kind of, to be honest, assumed most of them would have that one of those primary reasons that would make you think they'd be on that. But a interesting thing, kind of something to keep in mind as as you're part of the team and we're trying to figure out, all right, how do we get them off the nicardipine, right? What agent are we going to start? They're not on home agents. So kind of a, a bump for using um, some of those agents that uh, affect our RAS system. Our next study is a rare one where the title also matches an outcome of sorts that the researchers are trying to look at. So let's keep rolling here, Hannah. Thanks, Nick. So this next trial may redefine our definition of pill in the pocket. The rapid trial published in The Lancet sought to evaluate self-administered intranasal atropamil, which is a fast-acting L-type calcium channel blocker for on-demand acute conversion of AV nodal-dependent paroxysmal supraventricular tachycardia, or PSVT, to normal sinus rhythm. This was an expansion on the original Node 301 study, which evaluated single-dose atropamil for symptomatic PSVT and found no difference in efficacy compared to placebo. In contrast to the Node 301 study, the RAPID study allowed for repeat dosing of atropamil to assess if there is a benefit with higher or repeated dosing following an unsuccessful first dose. They included 184 adult patients with a history of sustained episodes of PSVT, when patients recognized symptoms, they attached the EKG monitor, attempted a vagal maneuver, and then gave the study medication if they were still in PSVT. The authors noted significantly higher rates of conversion to normal sinus rhythm in the intravenal group compared to placebo, with the number needed to treat of three. Of note, most patients in both groups did administer a repeat dose. They also noted a significantly faster time to conversion in the intravenal group with a lower heart rate at 30 minutes, which was maintained at 300 minutes. In their safety analysis, they noted higher rates of adverse events in the atropamil group, but these were mild in nature and included nasal discomfort and congestion. The authors concluded that atropamil could be safely administered in a non-healthcare setting with repeat dosing for PSVT and is associated with faster and more consistent conversion to normal sinus rhythm when compared to placebo. The strength of the study included its double-blinded prospective and randomized design. They also included all patients who took the study drug in their safety population, whether or not they were found to actually have an episode of PSVT, which is encouraging since patients may self-administer treatment when they're not truly in PSVT in the real world. Limitations of this study include the inherent limitations of self-administered medications in general, which have the potential to introduce a lot of confounding and inconsistencies into individual PSVT management, 
However, again, this likely reflects real-world effectiveness. Atrivimol seems to be a promising potential option for self-administered PSBT treatment and is well-tolerated. I'd like to see larger studies with more real-world conditions, and it'd also be interesting to see how it holds up to some of our other established self-administered antiarrhythmics like flecainide. While the Node 301 study showed no difference with single doses, atrivimol appears to be effective compared to placebo with repeat dosing, which might indicate the need for further dose-finding studies to see if higher doses are more effective and still well-tolerated. And I think one of the most important findings, obviously efficacy is important. We want to know that this works, but, you know, in, I think it's super important how well tolerated it was, right? We know how much adenosine makes patients feel like literal death. A true story, we had a patient that we uh, gave two doses of adenosine to, did not work. We mentioned trying to give another and they were basically, they, they scared themselves into like basically converting themselves. It's terrible. And on the adverse effects, feel like death wasn't actually one of the options like in the list. Um, there was only one serious adverse effect in, in that. So um, what a promising option for self-administered treatment. You mentioned the testos. They, they talked about things like EKG, heart rate, blood pressure changes. I'm kind of curious what Will this be a REMS requirement? Will this be something where like you have to start it like Tikasin in the hospital? I'm kind of curious what, what this will look like in order to how to get it. But uh, shout out to these study participants who self-diagnosed their PSVT correctly almost 80% of the time. Super impressive. Anytime I feel my heart rate happening, I'm like, well, okay, I guess I'm just going to be in, you know, a flutter forever. And these, you know, they're able to know exactly when this was happening. So a really cool um, finding from this study and hopefully, right, a way to help try to keep some of these patients out of the hospital for conversion, which is uh, so many of their biggest goals. Uh, Hannah, close out our CV section looking at antiarrhythmic medications in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Yeah, so this next study was published in Critical Care Medicine and aimed to add some more context around our antiarrhythmics in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. It was a per-protocol post-hoc analysis of data from the ROCK-ALPS trial, which included 3,000 adults in North America with shock refractory out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and compared the efficacy of amiodarone, lidocaine, and placebo and essentially found no difference in outcomes. This individual patient-level secondary analysis aimed at exploring the relationship between time to antiarrhythmic treatment and patient outcomes and to determine if antiarrhythmic influences this relationship. In this study cohort of just under 3,000 patients, they found that the likelihood of survival to hospital discharge with a favorable neurologic outcome decreased with each minute increase in time to drug administration in all three groups, which isn't surprising given that longer time to drug administration likely reflects a longer time to EMS response and critical interventions like CPR. In logistic regression, they attempted to assess how treatment effects changed for each drug as time to drug administration increased. They found that survival and likelihood of a favorable neurological outcome was significantly higher with amiodarone compared to placebo, regardless of the time to administration, and compared to lidocaine at earlier times of administration. They also found that lidocaine had significant benefits on both survival and neurological outcome only with the later times of administration compared to both amiodarone and placebo. The strengths of the study are its large sample size, which can be challenging in a population like out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, as well as its good generalizability to patients in the U.S. 
They also noted similar decreases in survival rates as time to drug increases, as has been seen in other studies, thus lending support to their study methodology. An important limitation is the fact that this was a post-hoc analysis of previously collected data, which allows for the possibility of unmeasured confounding and increases the risk of finding a significant difference due to random error. The study suggests that earlier times to drug administration is associated with better outcomes in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and helps lend support to the role that amiodarone and lidocaine currently have in cardiac arrest algorithms. However, due to the post-hoc nature of this analysis, specific outcomes reported should be considered hypothesis generating. Hannah, what would you say is your favorite antiarrhythmic medication in, uh, in ACLS? I feel like I got to say amiodarone. It's just reliable and effective and it has a cool mechanism. So um, maybe long term, we see a little bit more toxicity, but at least in the short term in these acute things, I feel like it's kind of old faithful. All right. Hannah and I, I think we're, I think we got a beef because you know, I'm team lidocaine here. No, I'm just kidding. It's uh, it, the, um, I think all comers, it's probably amiodarone. The interesting thing here is that the results also maintained in the placebo group. So they had these benefits, right, with amiodarone, lidocaine, um, but the Rock Alps trial also included placebo. So uh, interesting findings, right? I mean, it's at a certain point, meds are only going to do so much, but um, I feel like we're getting a lot of kind of uh, comparisons looking at our antiarrhythmics, time to giving them, maybe patients that uh, best should receive one versus another. So some really interesting uh, findings there. Uh, let's stay in the, the cardiac arrest realm. I'm going to add just a couple articles. We'll kind of stay alive. This will be a, a, a hybrid between the two. Um, but the first is a study assessing the impact of hypothermia on drug concentration. So I mentioned the TTM2 trial when we were, when I was discussing the TAME feature trial, and this is the, the study I'm talking about now. It's actually a sub study of the TTM2 trial. It took place in three Swedish hospitals. Now, Reminder, TTM2 randomized out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients um, to either hypothermia or normothermia, uh, and the aim of the study was to investigate the association of those two levels of targeted temperature management with, you know, uh, administered cumulative doses of sedatives and analgesics, serum concentrations of these drugs, and the effect of timed awakening, right? So are patients getting more in one of the groups? Is it hanging around in more of the groups and are they taking longer to wake up in both of these groups? So uh, 71 patients were ultimately included, the largest multi-center trial on this question, and they found no differences in either doses or serum concentrations of sedatives and analgesics between that hypothermic and normothermic treatment arm. Uh, so based on the findings from the study, you should be able to have the same sedation plan for patients undergoing TTM and those who aren't. Um, I think as a lot of centers maybe move away from uh, more aggressive targeted temperature management, this is potentially less of a question, but still a really important issue and something where, again, in theory, our uh, hypothermia reduces metabolism and things like that, but the theory didn't necessarily play out, at least in this um, kind of post hoc um, secondary analysis of the TTM2 trial. Um and I know, I mean, this has been, July was a heavy hitter for awesome trial names. And our last study in the CV section is in the running for the best trial name of 2023, the Terminator study. I, I kid you not. Now, um, jokes aside, this was a, a study published in resuscitation, and it was looking to quantify physicians' bias to terminate resuscitation in cardiac arrest, right? Because 
this, you know, medically and ethically difficult decision, it's ultimately the physician's choice, right? If you've been in the room, right, of course, the the great team leaders and code leaders are going to ask if anyone in the room has other thoughts, things to do. Um, but it's ultimately the physician's decision. And these French researchers looked to test to see if some physicians have a greater or lower tendency to terminate resuscitation than average. So it's a registry study looking at patients from a suburban area of Paris. They included out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, uh, just over 5,000 cases from January 2013 through September 2021. And the physician's internal bias that may influence termination decisions, the authors nicknamed that the doctor effect. And now they appropriately recommend caution with interpreting these results. But in this model, and it's a complex statistical model, but the when they're looking at the... Uh, specific effect of things and their determination of or their effect on stopping versus continuing in this model the doctor effect is greater than that of an arrest lasting 10 to 20 minutes when deciding to terminate cardiac arrest so meaning you're more likely to continue uh compressions or things in that patient who's in that 10 to 20 minute arrest versus the others now it's a complicated model when you're trying to interpret it, trying to review this in one to two minutes is even a little more complicated, but my major takeaway, and hopefully everyone else's too, is that more guidance is needed here, right? This is such an incredibly difficult decision and things that we could do to make it more objective will just help create consistency and really make decisions, you know, let, you know, make the decisions feel less subjective and all on the shoulders of one person. Well, those are some awesome cardiac studies here. Now, uh, there was some awesome heme studies. So, uh, Hannah and Chris are going to hang tight just for a second and we are going to let it bleed while I cover three articles, uh, notably from July, 2023. So, The first is a study from the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery assessing the most appropriate place to intubate a critically ill trauma patient. So this was a retrospective study from trauma centers that participate in the National Trauma Data Bank from January 2017 through December 2019. So patients received at least one unit uh, transfusion in the first four hours, and they were taken to the OR for hemorrhage control within 60 minutes. So a few key exclusion criteria, traumatic arrest patients, non-survivable injuries, or GCS of less than eight. Now, uh, the cohort consisted of just under 10,000 patients, mainly young men in their 30s with penetrating injuries. Now, there were differences in baseline characteristics between groups, but after adjusting for those Intubation in the ED was associated with an increase of mortality, a longer ED time, more blood transfusions, and major complications. So, you know, this study and these authors are certainly making the argument that patients should be intubated in the OR when possible for these really sick uh, hemorrhagic shock trauma patients. Keep in mind, retrospective registry study, right? So you shouldn't come in all hot, you know, talking to the trauma surgeon while we're intubating in the ER, but just something to keep in mind um, info-wise and things as we're treating these patients. Now, next is a retrospective VA study analyzing the most appropriate reversal agent for factor 10A inhibitor-related bleeding. Now, published in the Journal of Thrombosis and Thrombolysis, it features pharmacists from South Carolina looking at clinical outcomes from VA patients uh, comparing indexin A-alpha and PCCs for DOAC reversal. So retrospective cohort study included VA patients from March 2014 through December 2020. 
And I want to point this out. I think this is a really important point when interpreting results of this study. Index NA Alpha was only available starting in 2019, right? So you have a two-arm retrospective study, but there was only one arm getting treatment from 2014 through the end of 2018. So keep that in mind. Some of our care of these patients might have changed in that that cohort as well. But the researchers looked at in-hospital and 30-day mortality. They included 255 patients, double them... uh, two to one receiving PCC versus an um, index and alpha. And in this study, index and alpha reduced in hospital and 30 day mortality. Now, a couple things I noted the time. The other thing is out of the 170 PCC patients, 64 of them were on a noxaparin and received PCC. So that's just way different than most of the other studies looking at these agents you know, most of the time you would see those for more the rivaroxaban, apixaban. I know the Annexa study included inoxaparin studies, um, but just an interesting finding. Um, other things I would have liked to see would obviously be dose and time to administration. I mean, to be honest, I need to see the Annexa I. That's what I'm excited to read. It's going to be hard for uh, retrospective studies um, to really change decisions at this point, but all uh, good to have kind of real-world information as the as the authors describe it. So kudos to those South Carolina pharmacists. Um, and closing out the HEME study is a trial looking at a pharmacologic intervention and the long-term effects in TBI patients. So uh, this specific study published in Intensive Care Medicine, it's a long-term follow-up of the EPO-TBI study, assessing the impact of apoetin alpha in moderate to severe TBI patients. So uh, in this study, they included 356 patients in that long-term follow-up, and they were looking at survival and functional outcome. Now, what is long-term follow-up? I was thinking a year, two years. No, no, no. It was a median of over six years in this study. So the authors were not joking when they said uh, long-term outcomes. And ultimately, the authors found no difference in mortality or favorable functional outcomes. So um, in a sense, really putting putting to rest the question of possible benefits of that apoetin alpha in TBI patients. As we made it through the heme section, let's take a deep breath and Chris, come back and talk about some some notable studies uh, published in the pulmonary section in July of 2023. So Chris, lead us off in this section discussing an intervention to prevent a common post-RSI complication. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Nick. So as critical care pharmacists, one thing we probably see a fair amount of in our day-to-day is emergent intubation. And this study published in Critical Care Explorations investigated if prophylactic pressors could help improve patient hemodynamics following intubation. So this was a post-hoc analysis of two previously done multi-center randomized controlled trials, Bougie, which looked at Bougie versus endotracheal tube with stylet for intubation, and Prepare2, which evaluated fluid resuscitation prior to emergent intubation. Primary outcome here was primary or was peri-intubation hypotension, which was defined as cytotic blood pressure less than 90, occurring between induction of RSI and two minutes after intubation. The study included 1,798 patients, 187 of whom received prophylactic pressors. In the entire cohort, patients who received vasopressors pre-procedure were older, more likely to have a diagnosis of sepsis, and had lower pre-intubation blood pressures. To account for these confounders, the authors derived a potentially matched cohort that included 374 patients. 
It should be noted that the dosing and selection of vasopressor was up to the discretion of the treating clinicians and was not uniform across the included centers. Results within the MAX cohort were fairly underwhelming as there was no statistically significant difference in peri-intubation hypotension, which occurred in 41% of the prophylactic pressure group and 32% in the no prophylactic pressure group. Patients in the prophylactic pressure group also had a significantly higher rate of vasopressor initiation after intubation. Ultimately, the study did not show significant benefit with use of prophylactic pressors in the setting of RSI. However, the study did have several limitations, including no uniformity with agent or dose of prophylactic pressure used, and also due to the retrospective nature of the study, despite accounting for confounders, there's still a possibility that some entered or were present in the data set and may have impacted results. Overall, the question of prophylactic vasopressors in RSI does require some more investigating, as there's pretty well-established data that peri-intubation hypotension does correlate with worse outcomes long-term for patients. Um, but a randomized controlled trial, or at the very least, a more targeted retrospective analysis may be better to find a specific agent and dose for prophylactic pressors in this setting. Chris, do you routinely use push-dose vasopressors in any of your, like, ICUs or ICU patient populations? So we do have uh, push-dose phenylephrine PRNs as part of our RSI order sets at UNC. Um, as far as the routine use, it, I would say, is dependent on the clinician do, conducting the RSI. Um, so I can't really speak to how often we use it, but we do have them available. Um, also kind of depends on the patient's population that's getting um, the procedure done. Yeah, this was, you know, interestingly, like you said, the patients who received those vasopressors seem to do numerically worse in things like hypotension and mortality. And it makes sense based on some of those unmatched characteristics that you described. Um, the one thing that I kind of wanted to point out was that more patients experience the hypotension in the ICU compared to the ED. It's about an 80% to 20% split. Um, so just thinking of where these patients are in the hospital, um, it sounds like they're more in ICUs versus the EDs. But uh, a great study from the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group published in uh, Critical Care Explorations. Um, now, because our next article from the Blue Journal, it highlights an adverse effect in patients who aren't able to express when they are experiencing it. So go ahead and take us away on this interesting study, Chris. Yeah, for sure. So as you alluded to, I think one overlooked aspect of mechanical ventilation is the dyspnea that can be associated with it, which can be traumatic for patients going through that. Um, and this Blue Journal article looks at the Mechanical Ventilation Respiratory Distress Observational Scale, or MVRDOS, and its ability to detect and manage dyspnea in patients who cannot communicate. So MVRDOS, for those who are unfamiliar, takes into account several subjective and objective parameters such as heart rate, respiratory rate, and facial expression, as well as asking patient questions such as, is your breathing difficult to assess dyspnea? Now, this last part, as you may imagine, may be difficult for a patient to answer who cannot communicate. So to adopt MVRDOS for a non-communicating patient, this single-center prospective study added additional testing such as EMG and EEG monitoring to assess MVRDOS's ability to detect and then manage dyspnea in non-communicating non patients with communicating patients acting as controls. Researchers defined a non-communicative patient as those with, an, with a RAS less than negative 2, a positive KMICU score, and those unable to self-report dyspnea based on three consecutive DVAS radians less than 10. Less than 10. Of note, methods of relief when a patient scores high enough on this scale are ventilator adjustments as first line, 
And then two milligrams of morphine every three minutes IV with a max of 10 milligrams per interval or until release of the tube. So the study ultimately included 50 patients, 25 who could communicate and 25 who could not. And the results were similar between both groups with about half of all patients achieving relief with ventilator adjustments alone and nearly all patients achieving relief with the addition of morphine. Uh, while these results are positive, clearly more data is going to be needed before standardized, before this is a standardized and implemented scale across all ICUs. And I certainly have questions about how generalizable this assessment can be for specialized ICU populations, particularly those in neuro ICUs, how well morphine would be tolerated in different po patient populations, particularly those who are elderly or have poor renal function. And then uh, just with nurse, the impact that this scale could have on nursing workload as there is a national staffing shortage and that could just add uh, additional burden to our nursing colleagues. So I think these questions would have to be answered before this is widely implemented, but this is definitely a promising first step for the MBRDOS scale. You know, this is a real world study when uh, the most common reason patients weren't included were A, equipment issues, or B, it was the weekend. It's like, yep, that's as real world as it gets. Um, you know, what a unique scoring system. Uh, for the visual learners, um, there's a figure E2 when you're trying to identify the paradoxical breathing. There's kind of a, an image and it shows you visually kind of what's happening um, and then along with this, with this study, there's a really great editorial that, that points out that the, um, the ATS statement on dyspnea emphasizes that dyspnea can only be perceived by the person experiencing it, right? So asking the question, what happens when a patient can't report it? So a really interesting finding here and when something to consider, right, when you're kind of dealing with unexplained agitation or pain and you're trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. So a great highlight here. Um, in closing out the poem section, Chris, fill us in on a rare adverse effect from a common antibiotic. Yeah, for sure. So Bactrim or sulfamethoxyl trimethoprim is one of our most commonly used antibiotics for a number of different infections. And many of us are probably aware of the common side effects like hyperkalemia, thrombocytopenia, and even some of the more rare severe side effects like SJS and 10. But this article published in Critical Care Medicine discusses an association between prolonged Bactrim use at treatment doses and ARDS. So this article identified 19 cases in adult and pediatric patients aged 10 to 37 years old from 1996 to 2021. And the ARDS associated with Bactrim use was no joke. So mortality was 35% among patients examined. ECMO was needed in 84% of patients, and about a third of these patients required lung transplant. It should be noted that the median time from bathroom exposure to symptom emergence was 17 days. After reviewing the various cases, researchers developed three diagnostic criteria to better identify bathroom-induced ARDS that involves the following. So first, the clinical definition. And this is an unexplained severe respiratory failure following treatment that's treatment, not prophylactic, doses of Bactrim for at least six days. And then there's a genetic component, and this is where it gets kind of crazy. So of the 19 cases, 11 of these patients were able to go through genetic testing, and 100% of these patients were carriers of both HLA-B star 0702 and HLA-C star 0702. This particular genetic variation is estimated to be present in about 30% of the U.S. population, but again was seen in all 11 of the patients who were evaluated. So that's kind of spooky. And then finally, the lung pathology. So the lung pathology here was somewhat unique, and the ARDS pattern in these patients is 
distinctive and known as diffuse alveolar injury with delayed epithelialization, also known as DAID. So it's unlikely that the vast majority of us will ever see this particular complication in our careers due to its rarity, but it's definitely something to keep in the back pocket if there's an unexplained ARDS that rolls into your ICU. And personally, it's now on my weird adverse reaction bingo card. Wait, how full is that bingo card? Right now it's an N of one, but I'm going <laughs> to keep collecting as I go through residency. You'll get, it'll get filled up for sure. Um, you know, a unique finding that the authors noted is that uh, patients had early air leak syndrome in a prior to positive pressure ventilation in about 75% of patients. So theories that maybe the pneumomediastinomer and pneumothorax prior to positive pressure ventilation, maybe that increases your risk or something. And, you know, a plug for stewardship, right? These patients were all coming in and they were started on common, you know, this isn't like, this isn't looking at all these patients are being treated for like PJP pneumonia or anything, right? They're treating UTI, SSTIs. So just a plug to, um, you know, obviously there are risks with all of them, even for our most common ones. So plug for our, our stewardship friends there. Um, well, I think we, I think we caught our breath in this poem section. What a, what an awesome kind of group of studies, now let's make our way to the front of the fridge and talk about some awesome pharmacist featured articles for the month of July, 2023. So we're leading off the pharmacist featured section with an EM FarmNet publication focusing on some of the most important emergency medicine articles published in 2022. So uh, in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, and you'll notice uh, multiple friends of the pod listed as contributors with the first author being Priyaporn Sarangarm. Um, now this is uh, entitled Updated and it's a collaboration providing commentary on the potential clinical impact for emergency medicine providers, pharmacists in general, uh, on the clinical impact of 20 publications. So the article, uh, this publication has 13 articles, four guidelines, and three meta-analyses. So it's essentially a 2022 emergency medicine pharmacotherapy year in review. So they talk about tenecteplase in acute ischemic stroke, the proper three, ACC AHA guidelines, acute pain management options. Of course, we're going to get a little TXA in there and much more zip drive worthy, 100%. Definitely uh, something to see what's been published. Remind yourself. And there's even, there are some trials of the day um, that I see highlighted in this uh, publication. So a uh, great way to lead off. Now, let's get to the articles voted on by you, the listeners. Now, remember, at Pharmacy to Dose, T-O to Dose on Twitter or Instagram, if you want to let your voice be heard, is a literature review series democracy, right? The, the votes win all. And the first article... It's a publication written actually by a recent guest and was briefly discussed on the episode itself. So Dave Dixon, who you remember from the Hefpef episode talking about his experience on guideline and writing committees, etc. Well, he wrote this fantastic JACCP editorial entitled, Is the Clinical Pharmacist Designation Still Relevant? So 
This is a fantastic uh, commentary. It goes into the history of clinical pharmacy. It breaks down the clinical pharmacist definition. And when he breaks it down, essentially it goes to show that it applies much more to quote unquote, our classical classic clinical pharmacists. And I'm going to paraphrase a statement from his closing paragraph. Uh, Many of my colleagues will read this and vehemently disagree. Those of us who underwent additional training want to be seen as something different, but I would argue it's more important than ever for our profession to come together. Well, Dave, I am not one of those colleagues. I honestly completely agree. I think we need to come together as a profession. The idea that we have some weird hierarchy of pharmacists, clinical staff pharmacists, clinical pharmacists, clinical pharmacy specialists, it's it's likely isn't uniting um, with that. So this is a must read. Uh, Dave does such a fantastic job breaking down this question, going into uh, all the nuances. So uh, JACCP, definitely go and uh, read that. And of course, if you haven't heard Dave's episode, definitely go and listen to that. It's a fantastic one talking about a disease state that we're likely going to be seeing more and more. So as we move into the article two vote, this is a runaway winner. I'm not going to lie to you. It was published in critical care explorations and it featured four pharmacist authors discussing alternative treatment options for a common medication used in the ICU that's uh, on a drug shortage. So Entitled Alternatives to Hydrocortisone for Hemodynamic Support in Septic Shock Management Due to Medication Shortage. It uh, features lead author Mohamed Aldhafi, uh, and this commentary aimed to guide clinicians on uh, alternate options, right? If you're having an issue obtaining hydrocortisone due to drug shortages. And uh, Table 1 is a gold mine, right? It not only gives recommendations for uh, alternate recommendations for the intermittent, right, hydrocortisone 50 milligrams IV every six hours, but also what to do if you're an institution that does a continuous infusion of hydrocortisone, the 200 milligrams over 24 hours. Uh, they go into some of the landmark studies with hydrocortisone sepsis, just a a great practical article uh, and big kudos uh, to all four of these pharmacist authors in this uh, critical care explorations article. In closing out our pharmacist featured articles, our front of the fridge, it's an emergency medicine article comparing the effect of two medications in patients with acute agitation. So uh, featuring pharmacist authors James, James Krenz and Kristen Medeiros, It's entitled A Retrospective Evaluation of Ketamine versus Droperidol on Time to Restraint Removal in Agitated ED Patients, uh, published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Man, two out of three, uh, or two out of four, so big day for the uh, EM Journal. Uh, But this was a retrospective uh, single-center study from Tufts Medical Center comparing IM ketamine and IM droperidol having efficacy and safety outcomes. Uh, As you can guess from the title, the um, primary outcome was uh, time for administration to restraint removal, and both agents had similar times. There was no significant difference, not only in that efficacy outcome, but in the safety outcomes either. Um, So, Kind of a great study showing the benefits of uh, both ketamine and vitamin D, aka droperidol, in our acutely agitated ED patients. 
closing us out, one of my favorite sections of the whole time, the grab bag, right? Talking about some articles that aren't necessarily clinical, but still have great impact and things that we can kind of learn a little bit. So I want to start off with an editorial, actually, uh, highlighting how patient convenience can lead to significant provider burnout. So uh, we've all been there, right, where it feels like you're always on call. You're responding to messages or emails at all hours of the day and night, right? I'm, I'm here with Chris and Hannah, two PGY2 residents. I'm sure they're, they're, they're shaking their head because they understand this feeling as well. And this, this JAMA editorial, it's actually entitled Death by Patient Portal, and it highlights the burnout that can grow and compound from something such as sim- something simple like a patient portal. So the the author, Dr. Stillman, he describes that he ultimately had to send a message to his patients, essentially setting ground rules for when he would be interacting with them on the portal, when he would be responding to messages. And I thought it was an extremely professional way of handling this, right? Not only a recognizing it, but addressing it in an appropriate manner. I think it's a, a great perspective piece. And from my interpretation, I think it's a message of not being scared to advocate for yourself when it feels appropriate, right? He didn't say, I'm never using this portal again, right? He described guidelines to make it so that he didn't feel like he was on call all the time. So obviously, this may not translate exclusively to us as inpatient pharmacists, but I think there are plenty of times that um, if we look to set borders, we might be able to help protect some of that personal time that is becoming more and more valuable by the, by the day, by the hour, um, and closing out, this is one of the most unique studies of the, of the whole year. And we're closing out with a lesson featuring the famous Jackie Robinson. So published in circulation, it tells the story of Jackie Robinson, right? And you probably know him, one of the most famous athletes in sports, sports history, right? One of the, the first black baseball player broke the color barrier, but he didn't have access to routine preventive care. Right. And, and the article mentions that he had prediabetes and even type two diabetes. And because of this lack of preventative care and management, he had complications from this diabetes and ultimately probably led to his passing at the young age of 53. And I told us not to like be sad. It was something that this article, it doesn't seem like this is a very well-known fact. And it just highlights that you got to take care of yourself, right? Diseases don't care who you are, how famous you are. So making sure you're doing those preventable things, taking care of ourselves is so, so important. Now, that was the July 2023 Literature Review Series. Another huge thanks to Hannah and Chris for coming on, helping highlight the great publications. You can find them, Chris at Bollinger715 and Hannah at Hannah D underscore Farm D. So Chris, Hannah, I appreciate all your time, effort, and energy. Thanks so much for coming on the pod. Yeah, thanks, Nick. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks so much for having us. Be sure to reach out to the uh, two special guests, Hannah and Chris. Um, let them know what an awesome job they did. The reference list with the articles that we covered today and more, it's featured in that podcast episode description as well as the updated website, pharmacy2dose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. 
The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care parent disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.